Podcasting from Hartford, you're listening to the Connecticut Scoreboard Podcast, your place for all things Connecticut sports. And here is your host, Jared Cutler. Don, I want to start here. You've covered some really interesting stories in your career. What got you to want to look into the decision here in in LeBron's event here in in Greenwich, Connecticut? Well, there was a lot of reasons. Uh, It was a seminal moment in sports media history. Um, Happened 10 years ago. You had the anniversary. That was an incentive. It was the worst we've ever seen LeBron James, uh, I think, in public. He was so uncertain and looked embarrassed. And and we really wanted to look into the legacy of the show and the through line you can draw from that night to things like player empowerment, to athletes taking control of their own stories, and and also LeBron James finding his voice uh, on issues having to do with race, social issues, and politics. So there was a lot that we wanted to try to look into. And then the very simple question too, Jared, simply whose idea was this? We also wanted to figure out who gets credit or the blame for a very awkward uh, night of television. Talking about how the idea came to be, I, th- I think one of my favorite parts of this is how, how it was something that sparked out of a, a Bill Simmons mailbag. Can you take us through some of the evolution from how it came from a, a reader-submitted idea to, to a full-fledged event on ESPN? Yeah, that was one of the things that really surprised us because the host of the show, Jim Gray, the veteran broadcaster, has been quoted, in fact, in the Those Guys Have All the Fun book by Jim Miller saying the decision idea was his idea. Well, it turns out it wasn't his idea. It was the idea of a guy named Drew from Columbus, Ohio. Uh, His name is Drew Wagner. He's 38 years old. He's a Detroit Pistons fan, it turns out, even though he lives in Ohio. He was born and raised in Detroit. And he wrote an email to Bill Simmons at the end of November 2009 saying, wouldn't it be great if LeBron James announced his free agency on ABC? Uh, Simmons replied in the mailbag column saying, oh, yeah, it's a great idea. LeBron should definitely produce this. He could probably sell it, package it and sell it to uh, pay-per-view for 45 bucks, charge 45 bucks and we'll get a great audience. Simmons then takes that idea of a reader, wasn't Bill's idea, it was Drew's, and he brings it to the All-Star Weekend in Dallas in February of 2010, and he pitches it not only to ESPN executives, including John Skipper, who was then the head of content, he also pitches it to Maverick Carter, LeBron's longtime business partner, uh, Leon Rose, LeBron's agent at the time, and Worldwide West, who was LeBron's advisor. And Simmons, behind the scenes for months at ESPN, is trying to get the deal done, trying to get it greenlit. Even as late as May of 2010, he's, he's pitching for it. He also pitched, by the way, uh, a documentary following LeBron around as he made his tour to those various teams. You know, LeBron considered going through six teams, staying with the Cavs and five other teams in the free agency. And Simmons also had that idea. But then it just sort of died in May of 2010. And then serendipitously, I think, uh, in early June 2010, Maverick Carter's at an NBA Finals game in L.A. It's game two. And at halftime, he runs into uh, Ari Emanuel, a Hollywood agent. And Emanuel is um, basically the guy that uh, Ari Gold and Entourage is based on. Mm -hmm. A big-time 
Hollywood agent, as well as Jim Gray, the veteran broadcaster. And that's how the idea gets revived. And it was Emmanuel who then pitched it to Skipper. Simmons is cut out of it at this point, And then Skipper greenlights the idea. And then it's a Jim Gray, Maverick Carter, Ari Emanuel production after that. Did you get the sense when Skipper was pitched this idea ultimately by LeBron's team, was this something that he latched onto right away and, and thought this was a great idea? Or was there any hesitancy on his part at this point in time about putting on the decision? You mean, you mean after he greenlit it before the show? Or yeah. yeah. He's still pitching it. No, well, after, after it was pitched to Skipper by Ari Emanuel, initially Emanuel wanted to buy network time. So Ari Emanuel goes to Skipper and says, we'll buy an hour of time on ABC. Skipper says, no, I don't want it on ABC. It's got to be on ESPN. And, and then not too long after that, uh, Ari Emanuel and Maverick come back to Skipper and they say, uh, well, actually, we don't want to buy the time. We just want you to give it to us for free. So ESPN <laughs> gave an hour of network time to LeBron James and Maverick Carter in exchange for an exclusive, um, basically. Skipper, I don't think, had any reservations about it. Um, you know, there was pushback, and we can talk about that, Jared. There was pushback from David Stern, the NBA commissioner at the time, who was quite upset about this and begged John Skipper to cancel the show because he thought the show was going to give too much um, power to a single player. And so Stern was concerned about it for that reason, but Skipper dug in and said, no, we're doing the show. And not only that, allowed Maverick Carter and LeBron James to pick their own interview. Um, you know, there was a lot of people at ESPN that felt that Stuart Scott, the late great Stuart Scott, or Bob Lee, or maybe even Stephen A. Smith should have hosted the show since it's an ESPN show. But Maverick Carter insisted it be Jim Gray. So that's why we saw Jim Gray sitting across from LeBron that Going into a little more of the logistics, and that's where you get the Connecticut connection here to the decision. How did they decide to, to do it at the Boys and Girls Club in Greenwich, Connecticut? Well, that's a really a good question that I am going to have to take a very educated guess on. Uh, we asked that question of some people. I believe that it was Keith Klinkscales, the ESPN executive, who was the liaison at ESPN, uh, between John Skipper, basically, and the LeBron camp, who had suggested that the Boys and Girl, Girls Club in Greenwich would be a good location because of its close proximity to Bristol. It's about 90 minutes away from the Bristol campus. Um, I believe that's the case. The Boys and Girls Club uh, location venue was something that Maverick Carter and LeBron James and those folks wanted because the Boys and Girls Club was very important to LeBron growing up in Akron. Uh, and the charitable aspect of it was for the Boys and Girls Club. So um, that's where the money that LeBron was ultimately going to donate was going to go to. So that's why it was chosen. Though during the broadcast, there was very little said about charity. It was said a couple of times, but they didn't really lean into it. And it got overshadowed, of course, by just, you know, how awful the, how awful the broadcast was. Speaking, <clears throat> speaking of the broadcast itself, it I think one of the biggest criticisms that comes from the decision was just the awkwardness <clears throat> of it, how long it was. You know, you, you had a long segment here. When were you going to give the decision? What did you learn into that and kind of how they planned for that chunk of time during the decision? Yeah, so it was, it was really a Maverick Carter, LeBron James production. They were calling the shots, not just in the host that they chose in Jim Gray, but also in the way the show was going to be done, but it was in consultation with ESPN. And so in my interviews for the decision episode, I spoke with John Skipper, Vince Doria, and Keith Klinkscales, who all said, 
you know, in television, if you want to hold an audience, the later it goes that LeBron is going to actually say the decision, the better. So I think there were discussions back and forth about that. Um, but certainly once Stuart Scott from Bristol, from the studio show, threw it to Jim Gray at the Boys and Girls Club in Greenwich, it was totally up to Jim Gray how many questions he was going to ask, how he was going to handle that interview. Uh, he asked 23 questions before he asked, what's your decision? He asked questions like, did you bring the powder? He asked questions about what's this process been like for you? I mean, kind of weirdly vague, open-ended questions. LeBron was giving very short answers, too. And I've done many, many interviews. And when somebody's doing that, you get the tendency, number one, maybe they have something to hide. Or in this case, I think it was, get on with it already. And that's how people felt back in Bristol in the studio watching it. I had uh, somebody who was in the control room say they literally said, oh, my God, get to it already, because it was dragging so long, even to the point where right before Jim Gray asked the question, you know, what is your decision? He asked if you're a nail biter. So it, it, was, it was painful to watch in part because of the way the questions were asked by Jim Gray, but also in part because of how uncomfortable LeBron looked in the chair. And you could really see it live that it's almost as if he didn't want to be there or he was having second thoughts while the, the decision broadcast was going on. When, when it came to those questions that were asked, how much of an involvement did LeBron and his team have in that? Were they giving Jim Gray questions they, they wanted him to ask? Were these questions that, that Gray had come up on his own? How, how did that structure work out? These were Jim Gray's questions. Um, I had sources around LeBron tell me there was very little preparation. Um, fans may remember that that week leading up to the decision, LeBron was in Akron. Uh, he was hosting his Nike-sponsored summer basketball camp. He didn't get to Greenwich, Connecticut until about 6 o'clock uh, the day of the decision broadcast. He went to a house in Greenwich owned by an agent who was working with Ari Emanuel, and LeBron had a bunch of promos to shoot with Jim Gray for the broadcast that night. He was busy doing that. He had dinner with Kanye West. Kanye was there and they had a buffet dinner. Uh, and then he got to the Boys and Girls Club about quarter to nine, just about 15 minutes before the ESPN national broadcast began. And so there was very little prep. And I had a source close to LeBron tell me he didn't know how many questions Jim Gray was going to ask him. Um, he thought there was going to be a little bit of small talk and he'd be asked. And then there was going to be a post interview he knew with Mike Wilbon that he did. Um, so he was surprised, I'm told, as anybody about how many questions Jim Gray asked and how long that process took before the question was posed, Where's your, what, what is your decision? So, so let's look at this now, po post-air, and, and some of the, the regrets from it, based on, on the work you did and the people you spoke to, from two ends here, A, do you think LeBron regretted doing this? And B, do you think ESPN regretted what they did in their role in this? Well, LeBron certainly regretted it. He regretted it within hours, if not minutes. And as I said, maybe even while he was sitting in the chair, he regretted it. But um, he flew with Maverick Carter and Rich Paul and Randy Mims, the guys around him, to Miami that night on a private plane. And um, they knew about the Dan Gilbert Comic Sans letter that came out that trashed LeBron. That really angered them. But they also knew that jerseys were being burned in Cleveland. They knew the way the decision was landing across the country and all the criticism that was involved. So they regretted it instantly. And, and actually, Maverick Carter regretted it even more, I think, than LeBron, because it was really a Maverick Carter push idea. It was a Maverick Carter production. And LeBron had agreed to do it. 
And so, yeah, there was a lot of regret uh, in that camp. And it even got out, Jared, to the New York Knicks. Uh, Isaiah Thomas was with the Knicks at the time. He was, of course, trying to get LeBron to go to the Knicks. The Cavaliers, of course, were really stung and upset that LeBron was leaving. And Chris Broussard told me uh, in the show that there was some thought on those two teams that maybe they could get LeBron to change his mind because he hadn't signed his contract yet. Um, of course, that was a pretty far-fetched idea, uh, but, but that's just what they were hoping. Uh, on the ESPN side, there was definitely uh, some concerns going into it. There was a split between the news division. I talked to Vince Doria, the longtime news director uh, of ESPN for the show. Uh, he had concerns about the way it was going to happen. He didn't like the idea that this was, as he put it, a dog and pony show. It was delaying the announcement. There was you know, difficulties of how the ESPN uh, NBA insiders were going to be able to cover this. Do they scoop the show? Skipper said they were not told not to scoop, to scoop the show if they got the news, uh, interestingly, I thought. And then in the aftermath of it at ESPN, yeah, there was some hand-wringing and uh, a lot of discussion internally in Bristol about the way this was handled and could it have been handled in a different way. Ari Emanuel and Maverick, they're, they're, they're not dumb guys. Do you think any, either of them foresaw any of this criticism coming? You would think that that would have come through at, at some point, but did you get any insight into, you know, maybe, you know, at some point while they were putting this together, maybe they thought that there could be that negative aftermath to it? Well, there were definitely warnings. Um, what's really interesting is Leon Rose, LeBron's agent, and World Wide West, LeBron's very close advisor at the time, soured on the idea. They liked the idea earlier in the year when Simmons pitched it to them. At least that's what Simmons tells us uh, from an email uh, that he had written to ESPN executives that I got a hold of. Um, but by you know late May, early June, when they were pretty certain that LeBron was going to leave Cleveland, they envisioned the backlash that did occur for him to do the decision in such a public way on a nationally broadcast show with 10 million people watching. And they warned, both Leon Rose and World Wide West, warned members of LeBron's inner circle, don't do this. Same thing that David Stern said to John Skipper, don't do this because it's going to backfire on LeBron. And it's going to hurt LeBron's uh, image and, uh, and his brand. Um, however, Maverick Carter just said, Maverick Carter has said publicly, I'm a gambler. He knew there were risks to this. He knew that was a possibility. So did Rich Paul, so did Randy Mims, and they pushed forward with it. But they were warned about it, and um, that, that, that didn't matter enough for them to turn around and, and call it off. They still moved forward with it despite those warnings. When, when you talk about the David Stern piece there, was he more concerned about that power going away from the owners and the front office and in, in enabling players more? Or was, was he more concerned about the look of the league saying that, hey, you know, this backfires on our biggest star here. You know, we're, we're in some big trouble. I think it was both. Um, I think he definitely was smart enough, you know, like Leon Rose and World Wide West to see that there, this could backfire. Uh, on the league's biggest player, but he was most concerned. The, the biggest argument he made against it was John Skipper, uh, who was head of content for ESPN and who we interviewed for the Backstory episode, was that the player was going to be in control, that he was worried this was setting a bad precedent uh, for player empowerment. And it was a prescient view by Stern, as it turns out, because it really was the first step toward NBA players uh, taking far more control of their own destinies and leaving teams without 
necessarily even waiting for their contracts to expire through free agency. Now you've got players like Anthony Davis and Jimmy Butler and others that leave teams just because they want to leave a team and demand a trade. And, and then that happens. Uh, agents will stiff arm general managers on behalf of players. And, uh, and so the worst case scenario of what Stern was envisioning, that there was going to be a shift in the balance of power between owners and players, um, certainly from Stern's viewpoint, he's no longer with us, of course, but certainly that, uh, that concern he had was a justified one with where we are now with player empowerment. Talking about that, that player enablement in the power of the athlete, how do you think this decision changed things? And I know you mentioned a few examples there um, in, in your last response, but how do you think that changed things going forward for athletes, not only in the NBA, but, but across sports in general? Well, I thought Mike Wilbon put it really well in the episode. It really, I think, is a power of an idea and the power of imagination that uh, players really can control their own destinies. As he put it, it's no longer the era of the reserve clause. And now they can sort of dream about what they want to do and try to make that happen, not just in, tr in changing teams, but in their voices and the way they will express themselves. Um, a big part of the legacy of the decision is athletes telling their own stories. That's something that Maverick really should get a lot of credit for. He's a pioneer in that way. He saw this as a first step to eventually LeBron becoming an executive producer of his own shows that could be sold to multiple networks. And as we've seen, Jared, it's Serena Williams, Tom Brady, Kevin Durant. Uh, there's so many athletes that have started their own production companies. The D Wade documentary we saw earlier this year on ESPN that he produced and um, the Players' Tribune, the rise of that, and athletes telling their own stories directly to fans and readers and viewers um, is also another legacy of the decision that Maverick Carter really uh, saw for LeBron. LeBron has done that, and the success of that has certainly led to a lot of imitation. I'll get you out of here on, on this one, Don. Initially, out, out of... Coming out of the decision, LeBron was vilified by a lot of people. Do you think that's worn off as, uh, you know, as time has gone on and as people have seen this more as a move for player enablement and allowing them to, to kind of tell their own stories, as you talked about? I think so. I Certainly that first year, LeBron was a villain across the country in every NBA arena that the Miami Heat went to. LeBron was booed. Um, when the Heat lost that NBA Finals in 2011 to the Dallas Mavericks on their own floor. Uh, there was a lot of glee across the country that LeBron lost the title that he left home to go to Miami to win. Um, but I think over time, and certainly the fact that in 2014, after winning two titles for the Heat and making the NBA Finals four consecutive years, when LeBron went home, back home to Cleveland, that's the redemption story that I think really won him back into the good graces of a lot of fans and then winning the title in, in, in incredible fashion the way the Cavaliers did in 2016 uh, certainly did that as well. And, and, and I think that LeBron really is the most outspoken and influential American athlete. And I think that um, that has also endeared him to many fans across the country. So certainly that villain role that he um, kind of uncomfortably took on that first year has certainly been shed. And now, you know, 10 years later, as we end the backstory episode on the decision with what he's done with his philanthropy in Akron, 
the opening of the Hope School in 2019, and everything he's done has certainly made people look at LeBron far more favorably, favorably than they were looking at him uh, on July 8th, 2010. Don, uh, I really appreciate the time and uh, highly recommend to anyone who hasn't checked out the, the most recent Backstory episode here with, with Don to, to check it out because really some, some great insight into uh, a big moment here in, in sports and player enablement. So Don, I appreciate the time and thanks for coming on. Thank you, Jared. Appreciate yeah. it. Thanks for listening to the Connecticut Scoreboard Podcast with Jared Cutler. If you like the show and want to know more, check out the podcast on Twitter at CT Scoreboard Pod the host at Jared Cutler, and find us on Facebook at the Connecticut Scoreboard Podcast. Finally, if you enjoy what you're listening to, rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.